I don't recommend writing to a trend because trends always end and your best chance of being published is if you write from the heart and you write what you're really passionate about. But you do need to be aware of the kind of difficulties you might encounter. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the Convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. Today on the Convo couch, I have my good friend and writing buddy, Laura Boone, joining us in a Business of Writing episode to talk about her new book, Tips from an Industry Insider. But before we get on to hearing about Laura's book and hearing some great tips from Laura, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my current writing, which is Nano. Now, I know there's a lot of people out there who are doing Nano or NaNoWriMo, writing 50,000 words in a month, and I've taken up the challenge, hoping to finish it for the first time since 2009, which was when I last finished my full version of Nano. And when I looked it up, I actually completed 60,000 words in that November in 2009. I have done it multiple times since. I think once I got up to 30,000 words, another time I just got 11 or 15 or something. This year, I am determined to get to the 50,000 and to get a new story out. The interesting thing with this particular story is I'm going back to the same technique that I used with Blackwater Lake, which was to basically go in with not much of an idea of plot just a couple of really small fragments, a couple of little bits of inspiration and just sit down and write and see where the story takes me and where the characters take me. I have to say that after having just finished a novel, which is sort of at probably second draft stage, I'm letting it rest at the moment, but being at that stage, I'm finding um, it quite daunting, the whole idea of starting another novel I have to say, and I I found myself on the eve of Nano on the the last day of October going to bed feeling actually physically ill about the whole thing. I thought, this is ridiculous. So I've decided to take the approach that instead of sitting down to write part of a novel every day, I'm thinking of it as writing a scene. So I'm just writing a scene that might be in the novel, it might not. It's just a scene where I'm getting to know my characters. And that's the other thing that I'm actually doing is I'm taking this approach of getting to know my characters, finding out who they are, learning what their internal and external conflicts are, how they relate to each other, what other characters come into the scene as I'm writing it, whether they're going to be a bigger part of the story or whether they'll just be a a one-off character. So I'm really looking at it as a process of learning about the characters and about the story and about exploring the ideas that I've got vaguely floating around. And I'm finding that that is actually taking a lot of the pressure off. So that's something I can recommend to you if um, you are a little bit daunted by the whole prospect of writing 50,000 words. Think of it as a scene. Think of it as a way of getting to know your characters. You might not even end up with a, a story in the end. You might just end up with fragments that you can then take and turn into a story later. Or you might end up with a fully formed plot. It's amazing what the creative mind does once you start working. 
The other thing that I'm doing is I'm actually trying to get as many of the words out of the way early in the day as possible. So I have developed in the last few months an early morning person mentality. It's a little bit tricky, but I now get up at six, have a cup of tea, and instead of reading, which I have been doing up until this month, I'm actually sitting down at the, the computer and writing. A couple of days so far I've managed to get the whole 1,700 words for that day done in that early morning writing session. Today I just got the 500 done, so I'll go back later and do hopefully another bit And I know some people in my writing group are doing sort of little spurts. So what Sally Hepworth calls the the nifty 350. So doing 350 words in the morning, another 350, you know, later in the morning, and then two other batches later in the day. So whatever it takes, you know, to get the words down and just really letting go of that need for it to be good, to be perfect, and really focusing on who are these people? Where's the story taking me? And just in the conversation that I had with Laura, which I've just recorded and you'll hear um, that coming up, she had the the idea too of writing in a tip she got from Sarah McLean when she did a, a workshop with her last weekend online, was when you get to a part where you're not sure what happens, just to write a couple of letters. And Sarah suggested the word, the letters TK. So she just puts those letters down and then that's a bit that later on she can do a search for TK and go back and fill those things in. So that might be another, you know, a couple of hundred words that you can fill in when you found out the answer to that particular question if you don't know, you know, anything about that particular topic that you're writing on at that point in the story. So there's a few little ideas on nano that might or might not work for you. I hope if you are doing nano that it's going well. Keep up the good work and just remember it's all about the writing, getting the words on the page and getting the story down. So now let's go into the interview with Laura. As I said, Laura's new book, Tips from an Industry Insider, is coming out. It's actually coming out on the 19th of November. Laura is a member of my writing group, The Inkwell. She's also been my publicist in the past at Hachette and she has also been an editor for me for Cross My Heart and All We Dream and she helped with the publicity for those books as well when they came out. So she's worked as a bookseller. She's worked as a publicist. She's an author herself, a fantastic romance author herself. And uh, so she's got experience across the whole range of the industry. She writes Hearts Talk column for the Australian Romance Writers Magazine, their newsletter that comes out each month. And uh, that's a great column where Laura talks about all different aspects of the industry. And she's compiled all those articles together into this book, but then she's upgraded those, updated them and added new stuff as well. So this is a great chat with Laura. I know you're going to love it. You're going to get a lot of information just from the interview itself, and then hopefully be inspired to go out and look up Laura's book when it comes out. So join me now, welcoming Laura Boone. So Laura, welcome to the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Thank you for having me, Pamela. Lovely to see you here. I have done a little bit of an overview of your, a very brief overview of your life to do with books and publishing in the intro, but could you tell us a little bit more about basically how you got to be here, where you are now? Well, it all started actually after I'd come back to South Africa many, many years ago, I won't tell you how many, with a degree in English language and literature from the United States. And I wanted to be a teacher, but in South Africa, you had to have a year of university Afrikaans in order to teach, even if you were going to teach English. And this really annoyed me because um, I had pretty good Afrikaans anyway, and I didn't think I needed another year. And one of my friends said, 
you know, why don't you try for a job at a bookshop? I think that would suit you. And so that's what I did. I started at a beautiful bookshop called The Bookworm under the auspices of a lovely woman called Jill Finsale. And I went gradually from bookseller to marketing and publicity where I spent a lot of time and eventually moved on to editing. And that's been over, you know, roughly 30 years. Mm. So when you arrived in Australia, Laura, you you went straight back into the same industry that you were in in South Africa? I did. I did. I started briefly in sales as a foot in the door and uh, then moved back into marketing and publicity. And uh, I worked for Walker Books initially, which is a wonderful publisher of children's books. And then I worked for a company called Finch Publishing, which has now closed because Rex Finch retired. But he was a niche Australian publisher and he did amazing non-fiction books. Uh, he had a sort of speciality in parenting and also in memoir. They published the French Memoir Prize and some really great books there. And then I went to work for Hachette, which is one of the big five. And that was a wonderful experience too. And I've, I've subsequently decided to freelance. Mm which is where we met when you were at Hachette and you worked as my publicist. That's right, yes. <laughs> it's a very small world, isn't it, the uh, it sure Australian is. writing and publishing industry. And, of course, you are an author too. You're a romance author. I am a romance author. I have two books out with the Wild Rose Press in the US. Uh, the first one's called The Millionaire Mountain Climber and the second one is a novella, Lion Dancing for Love. And I love writing those, and I'm currently writing another one. I have, I think, as many writers have been, been affected by lockdown one way or the other. And so I decided to do this nonfiction compilation, Tips from an Industry Insider, in between, because I find nonfiction easier. It doesn't, it requires um, more organization, but that's sometimes if you're feeling pressure, that's easier than the sort of creative writing that's required for writing fiction. I absolutely agree. Sometimes it's really hard to dig in and just find that creative inspiration when you're feeling, you know, when everything around you is chaos, basically. So yeah, yes. I totally sympathise with that. And, of course, you also write the monthly column for Hearts Talk magazine, Laura. Yes. So Hearts Talk is the newsletter of the Romance Writers of Australia and that's where I originally started Tips from an Industry Insider. I started on their blog, actually, and then we moved the column over to the monthly newsletter. And, I mean, I think it's something I've discovered throughout my career. So, I mean, especially working as a publicist, I often worked with new authors and I'd get a lot of questions from them about the industry. And I realised that when you work on the inside of book publishing, you know how everything works. And people come in from the outside and it all looks pretty straightforward, right? Because, you know, it's everybody's talking in English. There's no big numbers to deal with. There's no science. Processes and procedures and expectations. And quite often nobody thinks to explain these to new people. You sort of got to feel your way through it. And very often... Authors are too intimidated to ask their publisher or their editor. I think they, they don't want to look ignorant or they know they're very busy people and they're, you know, worried about disturbing them. Whereas, you know, the publicist is quite often hanging around with you waiting for an interview or in green rooms or 
And so you get to chatting and then people ask you questions. And so a lot of what I covered in the columns, which I subsequently developed for the book, are those kinds of questions, you know, the different terms in the industry mean, what royalties actually are, you'd be surprised how many people can, you know, sign a contract and don't really understand how royalties work. And again, it's something that people on the inside just expect people to know without really thinking that, you know, they've worked their way up from editorial assistant or whatever to publisher. And they've, you know, it's been in their head for the last 10 years, and they learned all that. But Authors really don't know. And I think if you're going to make an informed choice about your career, about especially these days when self-publishing is an option and about whether you want to self-publish or whether you want to go the traditional route, whether you want to stick it out for an agent or just submit directly, you need to know what your options are before you can make that informed choice. I 100% agree with that. And it's really interesting, you know, what you were saying about these terms and and things that happen in the industry that you don't know anything about. I mean, I've worked in traditional publishing and now indie publishing as well, but for over 10 years and, you know, have been involved with the publishing industry on the periphery for a bit longer than that. But there's still a lot of things that I don't know. And actually reading your book was a great insight for me into some of those things. And even yesterday in our we're in the same writing group, of course, the Inkwell. And in our Inkwell thread, the question came up, what does remainded mean? You know, and that's a term that's thrown around all the time. Oh, my book's yes. been remainded, you know. So so you mentioned royalties, Laura. So let's go back a little bit and start with that. Can you explain that whole process around royalties and how that system works? Because I think there's maybe some writers out there who, who still would be unaware of, of the whole advance and royalty situation. Sure. So the royalty is is basically what an author is paid per book. Uh, So it's the percentage they're paid per book. So if we just do some easy mathematics, if your book is $30 and you get 10% on the retail price, then you would get $3 a book. And so in principle, it's very simple. But then you have to take into account, first of all, you get an advance. Usually if you're traditionally published, you would get an advance. So what that word advance means is you get an advance on your royalty, not actually that you get an advance payment ahead of your book being published. So you get an advance on your royalty. So if you got, say, a $3,000 advance, you would first have to sell enough books multiplied by your $3 a book to clear that $3,000 before you started earning any additional money from the book. Mm. And then in traditional publishing, certainly the, the big publishers pay every six months. Um, although they tend to pay, they tend to do the accounting every six months and then pay three months later. So actually they pay every nine months. But, and the reason for that is your publisher might send out, say, 3,000 copies of your book on publication. And if they all sell, that's great. And then they'll do a reprint and send some more into the market. But if they don't sell and say they get a whole heap of those back, say, just for example, something goes wrong and it really reflects on the quality of the book. It has more to do with marketing and what else is out there at the time. Say 1,500 of those copies come back. Well, then you're only going to get um, a royalty for 1,500 books at $3 each. So that would probably, I think, that get you to just over the $3,000 advance you got. Mm. So you would get a few royalties, but not as much as you might have been expecting to start with. And then there are all sorts of things that affect your royalty. So if you look at the fine print in your contract, you'll find that 
your standard royalty is say 10% on the retail price, but you know, special deals of any sort usually result in a lower royalty. So the most obvious of those is foreign rights, which is something you don't usually have to worry about. But if a special deal is done with say Australia Post, you'll get a lower royalty off that. If your book is remaindered, as we were talking about, which means that it's basically, that doesn't usually happen until some years after publication or, or at least a year. But if it's remaindered, that means that the publishers decided they can't sell it any longer into the market. And so they're going to sell it off cheaply or if they can't do that, pulp it. And so if they sell it off cheaply to secondhand bookshops, you're going to get a smaller royalty you're not you're not going to get the 10 percent and if they pulp it i'm pretty sure you get nothing i'd I'd have Mm. to check that and one thing where royalties can be quite useful is if you're dealing with a hybrid publisher so publishers that are experimenting with different models of publishing i would be very careful about signing a deal in whereby your royalty percentage is based on the net price of the sale as opposed to the retail price of the book, because they'll always give you a larger percentage, so it looks much better. You might even get, say, 50% of the the net profit of the, the sale. It's really difficult for you as an author to calculate that net profit. So your book might be $30, and you're not entirely sure what expenses the publisher is taking off that. Obviously, things like printing, design, editing, But there may be some running costs for the business built into that as well. So your book might be carrying a percentage of the rent. You know, you you just don't know unless it's, you know, detailed. And most companies are reluctant to give out that kind of information. And so then the net profit on your book might be $5. So you could get 50% of $5, which is $2.50, which is less than the $3 you would have got on the recommended retail price. And the, the reason I particularly don't like um, that percentage of the, the, net, the net profit is just because it's obscure, it's not clear. You, you don't know exactly what's going into that. So mm. I think um, if you've been offered that kind of deal, then you've really got a good reason to think about would I be better off self-publishing. Mm. And that's just one of the things, you know, in your book that you talk about. It's sort of these mysteries of the publishing industry and and some of these more obscure things that you don't think about necessarily when you get that contract and you're so excited, and particularly if it's your first book. It's like, yes, sign on the dotted line and these people are interested in publishing my book. But there are a lot of these sort of hidden things that we don't know about. And actually, one of our Inkwell friends, Joe, has this question Laura, that she thought might be good to put to you. What do you think is the biggest mistake that aspiring authors make when they're thinking about that whole idea of publication? Um, I think, okay, so you could put that mistake down to, if I look at it from either a creative perspective or a business perspective, so the biggest mistake aspiring authors make from a business perspective is to sign the first deal they get because they're so excited that someone else is interested in their book. Any deal is really not better than no deal, you know, especially today when you can self-publish, you can do it reasonably cheaply, you will be able to fund it. So have a careful look at the contract. Um, 
The Australian Society of Authors offers a service where you can have somebody look at your contract. They do perhaps, the Australian Society of Authors, give you the perception that this is negotiable, that you can negotiate the contract. Most publishers are very unwilling to negotiate with a new author and you'll pretty much get the take it or leave it response, especially to things uh, that pertain to advances, royalties, et cetera, et cetera. So, but it's still worth getting, if you're really not good at that kind of thing, get somebody to look at it and think about it. Think, you know, I've put whatever, 10 months of my life or even longer potentially mm. into this book. Um, do I really think it's okay for somebody to pay me $2,000 for it and take nine months to pay it? Okay. I mean, you know, that's, you know, maybe it is, you know, maybe if you're doing something else, you know, maybe if you have a job as a lawyer and you your books are your passion project, you'll be okay with that. But maybe you aren't. So, you know, those are the things when you get that first contract, take a deep breath. It's great. It's validation for your work, but it's still validating whether you sign the contract or not. So don't rush into that first contract. From a creative perspective, I think the biggest mistake aspiring authors make is to think that once they finish the first draft, their book is ready to go. So to that, I would just say writing is rewriting and mm -hmm. um, you need to have somebody else look at it, somebody objective, you know, not your mum or your best friend or, or someone who's, who's never going to hurt your feelings about it. And then consider, you know, what they say, Join a writer's group. It can be very lonely writing. I think that's very important uh, for people to find a mentor or a writer's group, and you can do that through your local writing centre. Each state in Australia has a writing centre. Lots of the genres, organisations like Romance Writers of Australia, mm. where you can find that kind of help and support too. Yeah, yeah, very true. Another question actually from Joe is, what do you think is the biggest misconception about the publishing industry? You know, I think it's the overnight success story. Everybody thinks they're going to write one book and immediately make money from it. And that's just not the case. I mean, there are, you know, even authors who picked up by big publishing houses, for example, say Mills and Boone. I use an example because we know that Mills and Boone uh, publishes a lot. And we know that they publish for profits. And yet there are authors who are really famous now, who sell extremely well, who sold 80 copies of their first book. So, you know, it takes time to establish yourself. If you had a faster path to publication, then that's really wonderful and good on you. But as you go into it, you should expect to have to write two, three, four, five books before you really see your career develop. And I think because it's a creative art, sometimes people don't expect that. They do sort of have this idea of, oh, my genius will be instantly recognised kind of thing. Whereas if you were starting work in a, a corporation, you wouldn't immediately expect to get the CEO's job. You know, you would know that you'd have to work your way up from junior manager through the senior levels until you eventually got to that kind of place. So I think the idea of, yeah, one book, wonders mm. is is the biggest misconception yeah 
And just thinking about that too, Laura, you know, and I can speak from personal experience here, it's also true, isn't it? I think when you get a book contract, you think, oh, that's it now, I'm in, you know, I'm forever going to be traditionally published and my position is secure, I've got this book deal, I'll get another one. Um, But that's not necessarily the case either, is it? So I think it's always good to be aware of, you know, thinking of the big picture of your career, but also looking at each each stage of it as a bit of a stepping stone, as you say, like you you may not always be in that situation yes and and to be aware that publishing companies are businesses Mm. and as such they have internal politics I mean anybody who's ever worked in an office knows all about internal politics and some people get really involved in them and some people make sure they stay clear of them but um, those internal politics can affect you as an author even when you're on the outside and you don't know anything about it your publisher, and this is not even really an internal politics issue, but your publisher may leave the company and you may lose your champion and and just sort of fall into a hole where nobody pays attention to you. Or the genre you write might hit a bit of a plateau. We're always hearing things like, you know, rom-coms are in, rom-coms are out, you know, police procedurals are in, or psychological suspense is all a thing. And But then you know, everybody will publish that for a while and then it'll be harder for people to make money out of that book and there'll be a dip in interest in that particular genre. And so you might just come out at the right time and be a victim of that. And then when your publisher goes into the sales meeting, they will shake their head and say, oh, no, can't get rid of any of those in the bookshops. We don't want another one, you know. And so, sorry, the acquisitions meeting, not the sales Mm -hmm. meeting. And so, your book, whether you've been with them for a while or whether you're brand new, could be rejected on the basis of what's happening in the market. So you need to try and kind of follow things like bookseller and publisher, various, you know, there's various newsletters and things and people who comment on the industry and just kind of keep an eye on that. I don't recommend writing to a trend because trends always end and your best chance of being published is if you write from the heart and you write what you're really passionate about. But you do need to be aware of the kind of difficulties you might encounter. Yeah, it's good to go in with your eyes open, isn't it, I think? Yeah. Um, We've talked a bit about traditional publishing and you mentioned self-publishing as an option earlier. And, you know, I listened to the uh, Mark Dawson podcast quite a bit. And, of course, his tagline is, you know, there's never been a better time to be a writer because there are so many options for writers now but could you talk a little bit about the pros and cons uh, of what you see of of self-publishing you know versus traditional publishing? So I think one of the pros of self-publishing is that you stay in control of the process and so for people who are high control that's a really good thing. If you sign with a publisher you lose control of certain things. You probably will maintain control of the words in the book although the publisher will make a lot of suggestions and you will you know you will clash a lot if you don't follow at least some of those suggestions and and if you're particularly stubborn about it that could certainly impact whether or not that publisher wanted to work with you again in the future so publishers often have ideas for where they want to see a story go and you pretty much have to work with that the things you don't really have control over that nobody tells you are the cover design and the title. And those things are often very important to authors. And so to some extent, you have to let go of that if you go with a traditional publisher. Some publishers are better than others about asking for inputs, but in the end, they're going to go with what the marketing team thinks will sell best. And they have a lot of experience in that. So that's not necessarily a bad thing, but 
depending on your personality, you might not like mm. that. The other thing you don't really have any control over is marketing and sales spend. So if you publish with a traditional publisher, the advantage is you will get out into, well, your book will be shown to all bookshops. Book you won't necessarily get into everyone. Mm. And you might have some internal competition. So if you've written women's fiction, there's a good chance that yours is not the only women's fiction title that your publisher is pitching, say, to Big W. There's going to be other books. So you might lose out to someone published by your own publisher or you might lose out to somebody published by another publisher. Um, now, if you're self-published, you're never going to get into Big W. So, you know, you, you kind of have to take those kind of things into consideration. But you have less control over the whole process if you're traditionally published and you have to have faith in your publisher to do the best they can. And usually they do but not always, as many authors can attest. So the, the advantages of traditional publishing are that you get that wider distribution. You get the input of experienced people on your edits and so on, and hopefully you get an advance. So you get a certain amount of money for your book. Um, the disadvantages are the, the lack of control. The advantages of independent publishing, that you can have input into all those things, and we've been shown time and again that you don't need to have access to those big distribution channels to make money as an independent publisher. You can make money through ebooks. Many authors have set up a really profitable career on that basis. And with the advances in printing technology, it's easier and easier for independent authors to provide print copies to people who want them. So you can always go through Amazon these days. People like Booktopia will potentially look at releasing an, an indie book. So particularly if you're Australian, you can approach Booktopia. And the other advantage, I think, is that self-publishing or indie publishing as a commercial enterprise is really new. It's only about 12 years old. So it's just going to go from strength to strength. Some people will say, oh, the best days of indie publishing are behind us because there's so many authors doing it now. I think you have to believe in your book. If you write the best mm -hmm. book you can and you make sure it's well edited and all those things, you'll find your readers. And, and readers don't care who published the book. Readers care about the story. And traditional publishers know that because they never brand a book as a, say, random house romance. It'll be branded as by the author or the series. So as an indie author, in, in that sense, you're not at a disadvantage. It's just your name against other authors. The biggest disadvantage of indie publishing is that until you make enough money to employ somebody to help you, you have to do everything yourself. Mm -hmm. So you can't just write. You've, you've got to make time for marketing, um, ongoing publicity, reviewing your sales figures, all those things. And they, they do take time. So if you feel, you know, that you can't manage that and a lot of indie authors do have another job, so that's what you've got to look at. You've got to look at your time and, and how much you've got to commit to. Yeah, I, as someone who's done both, I completely agree with everything you've said there, uh, particularly about that whole thing of having to learn the different aspects of the industry, you know, in terms of the marketing, yeah. the technological side in terms of getting things uploaded. But there is so much help out there now, isn't there, for 
for people to learn. You know, there's there's Facebook groups, there's mm. courses, there's workshops. And as you say, if you if you can connect with other writers through writing mm. groups and conferences and things like that, you can learn so much from them as well. It's getting easier and easier and more people are offering help. And the, one of the great things about using technology is that the people who create the technology are constantly looking to improve it and streamline it. So that's something that I think will only work to the advantage of indie authors going forward. Mm, definitely. What other sorts of things do you cover in Tips from an Industry Insider, Laura? So I look at things from the sort of creative side of things, so starting up in terms of getting edited. I, I mean, I think, again, these are relationships that can sour very quickly if you uh, don't just give them a little bit of thought before you plunge headlong into something. So how do you work with an editor? Um, sorry, that's my little dog. He's, <laughs> he's squeaking away. He's got his little toy there. <laughs> yes. He's not amused that you are getting more of my attention than here. So everything from that editing to so and how you can work with your publishing team to get the most out of your book, uh, what you can do for free in terms of marketing your book, so the publicity side of things, watching out for scammers. That's another thing aspiring authors or first-time authors are very vulnerable to, and there are a lot of scammers out there. And then just, yeah, from the beginnings, basically, to, to writing your book all the way through to, to publishing it, whether there's yeah. advantage to writing a series, those kinds of things. Yeah. Interesting you bring up that point about the scammers because I've been contacted in the past by a few authors who are first-time authors or early in their career who have actually, I guess, paid a fair amount of money to what, what would be known as, well, really vanity presses, I guess, yeah. people who are prepared to take a large amount of money and give you very little back. So I think that's something to be aware of too for any aspiring authors out there is, you know, if, if, if it's a trad publisher, you shouldn't have to pay them to publish your book. It's different if you're going into a collaboration. There are, I yes. think there's sort of now a few publishing companies around who are, are sort of middle ground, who are, yes. are almost like partnership publishing. Yes. Mm. So, I mean, I guess there's two things that I can say that two really big red flags. So, first of all, if they're only print interested or they're more interested in print books and they don't want to do ebooks, that's a red flag because they're probably going to charge you for the printing. And then if you ever get told, oh, we'll keep the books in our warehouse and you can just get the booksellers to contact us to buy them, that's a very big red flag because that's not how it works. If you have a traditional publishing deal, your publisher will go out to those bookshops and actively encourage them to buy it. Booksellers get offered thousands of new books a month, mm. okay? Not, not even a year, a month that they have to choose from. So if they have to go and find a book in somebody's warehouse, they're just not going to do it. And it's a red flag to the bookseller as well. They know that any respectable publisher will send them a list of titles, will encourage them to buy from them, and will have an accounts system set up that the, the bookseller um, can buy an account. So those are, you know, if, if someone is charging you money, as you say, that's a big no-no. One other question, just going back to something that we were talking about previously, and it's something that took me a fair bit of time to realise there was a difference between. Could you talk a little bit about the difference between uh, publicity and marketing departments within a traditional publishing house? So traditionally, publicity is 
free, bearing in mind that there's really no such thing as a free lunch, okay? I think I preferred saying that publicity is earned space, whereas marketing is bought space. And uh, you earn your space based on the appeal of your story. And so publicity is looking at reviews, interviews. Launches often fall under publicity, but there is a, a cost to them, obviously, mm. in terms of, well, it's not always, but there's usually a small cost, whether it's um, catering or something like that. So the thing about publicity, though, is that it's often based not so much on the book, but on the author. So you'll get a, a first-time story, right? So the first time you're published, it's much easier for the pub- the publisher to get publicity for you second or third time around you'd be looking at different kinds of things so if you get well known enough you might be asked to contribute to a column like five books on my bedside table or you know something like that or and then at the end they'll just give um, a credit to you and say you know Pamela Cook is the author of or we dream recently released or whatever so that that publicity art changes board space is It can cover a wide range of things from advertising. And I'm just trying to think, I heard a very interesting ad campaign recently running on WSFM, which is a commercial radio station for uh, Judy Nunn. Oh, okay. And it was like a 30-second commercial that played at sort of prime time, so often just before the news. And it's just Judy speaking about her new book, which is uh, called Showtime, I think, and is in Melbourne some years back. I wondered, I half wondered if she published it herself, but I, I checked and she's still being traditionally published. But again, that's that thing about publishers knowing that that readers are going to buy it because it's a Judy Nunn book, not because I think Penguin is a publisher, but I, I stand under correction there. It might not be. And so so that's obviously bought space. Shopping centre billboards, especially coming up to Christmas, you'll see a lot of that. That's bought space. Something people often don't realise is bought space is catalogues, bookshop catalogues, uh, especially, you know, the big Christmas catalogues or the Mother's Day catalogues. That's bought space. So your publisher will pitch your book to the group whether it's Dimex or the Independent um, Booksellers Association, and they will then decide. And again, there's a lot of competition for those spaces. But once your book's been chosen, your publisher then pays a fee to have it appear there. So obviously, or maybe not obviously, but actually the bigger the advance you paid, the more likely your publisher is to spend that kind of marketing money on you because they've got to make that money back. The other places you see um, books advertised is on the back of cabs and sometimes taxis and buses. And publishers often go through cycles where they either favour publicity or they favour marketing. And marketing is more expensive, but it's also easier to measure. And and so sometimes that's favoured. When times are tight and people have to pull back on budgets, then they'll try more for publicity. But again, you know, if you think that booksellers are getting thousands of books a month, so are the big news outlets, your newspapers, your major magazines. So if you're indie and you're looking for a place to put your book, you really want to look for a niche market. So if you're a crime writer, look to get your book reviewed by a a site or a magazine or a newspaper that does a lot of crime where you know people go looking for crime books. Same for romance, same for fantasy. Yeah, I think that's great advice, Laura. And that whole 
review is, you know, area is a big can of worms that we probably won't open right now. (laughs) So Tips from an Industry Insider is actually your first experience of indie publishing, isn't it? Yes. So how have you found the process yourself? I mean, I think I'm really fortunate in having our writing group as a very supportive network who've encouraged it and who provided me with all the backup you'd want in terms of having um, beta readers, proofreaders, you know, people to bounce cover ideas off. But I've, I've really enjoyed it. I mean, doing my own cover has been a really fun experience. I've enjoyed that. Putting the book up on Amazon and those kinds of things has been a process I've enjoyed working through. And now we just have to see whether or not it sells and uh, what I can do on the marketing and sales side you know, once it's it's published, I'm going to be experimenting with more marketing as far as my budget will allow, because I just, it's a very niche product. So it's really for writers and not necessarily easy to find any publications or, you know, radio stations or anything like that, that will, where you can say definitively, oh, yes, writers listen to that all the time. I think just a sort of podcast about writing, yeah, of course. Well, exactly. So I'm off to a really good start because that's really neat. As opposed to say, and I'll just mention this as an example, people often get very excited if they get a spot on Sunrise or the mm. Today Show. And as a publicist, I've always been quite cynical about that because, yes, they have an audience of millions, but what percentage of that audience is a, actually readers as opposed to television watchers, and B, focused in that moment on remembering a book that they might want to read, Mm. as opposed to, you know, trying to get the children to eat breakfast and dressed and off to school. And so I am much more excited about being on your podcast, where I know that people writing will be interested in writing procedures and processes. They might well be in a stage of their career where my book is not for them, but that's okay. Maybe at some stage in the future they will. And then if they ever want to know what it's called, they'll know where to look as well. They'll go, oh, I just got to go back to the Rights for Women podcast and it'll be on there somewhere. So I would really encourage people to go niche when it comes to publicity and Mm. marketing. Yeah, that's great advice. Well, as somebody who has been in the industry for a long time and worked across all different facets of it, Laura, what would be your top four tips for writers covering any any aspects of writing that you can think of? Oh, top four tips. Okay, that's a big question. I think the first one would be never think your book is finished after the first draft. So you've got to do some rewriting. The second one would be do some research before you submit your book to any publisher or agents. And there are ways to do research. You know, people want to say, oh, well, how can I do that? You can go down to your local bookshop and have a a browse in the section where your book would fit. And you'll often find that um, authors thank their publisher, they thank their agent, they thank various people in the acknowledgement. So that will give you the names of people you, you can approach. Another part of that research would be if you're lucky enough to be able to submit direct to a publisher or even submit to an agent, follow their guidelines. They're there for a reason and you're going to get much more attention if you um, follow the procedure as opposed to just send out what's obviously a very general, you know, sort of, oh, I've written a book and, oh, and I suppose I wouldn't want to make this a separate tip, but in that 
in, in that vein, don't ever say your book is unique and nothing like it has ever been written before. Because if that's what you've got to say, it just means you haven't done enough research, okay? There'll be something out there like your book. What is quite good to say is that my book is, if you can say my book is a cross between All We Dream and The Tea Ladies of St. Jude's and explain why, then you'll catch a publisher's mm. interest. Because publishers want something different but not too different. So that's the other thing to remember because there's no market for two different. So if you want a traditional market, you need to do your research. So tip one is writing is rewriting. Tip two is do your research. Tip three would be even if you are traditionally published, don't think your job is done when the book hits the shelf. You've still got to be your book's chief champion. If you're lucky, your publishers will be your chief champion for three months. And then they move on to something else. So you've really got to be the person who works the hardest for your book. And my final tip would be always believe. You know, your book may or may not sell. And that really doesn't have to do with the quality of the book. And you can look at other creative industries and see that same thing. I mean, the classic example is someone like Vincent van Gogh, who I think sold one painting in his lifetime. And now they go for tens of millions of dollars, you know, which really is no help to poor Vincent, okay, because he's no. been dead for <laughs> centuries. Well, not quite, but you know what I mean. So you've got to keep the faith. You've got to stay strong. You've got to believe and you have to try again if you really want a career as an author. I love that advice, Laura. And there is all that and plenty more in tips from an industry insider. So can you tell us when the book is out, where people will be able to get it and where they can find you? So the book is out on the 19th of November. It'll be available from Amazon and all other leading or all other ebook retailers. You'll be able to buy the paperback from certainly from Amazon and from my website, which is lauraboon.com. And you can find me there and on Facebook and on Instagram and Twitter, all under Laura Boon, sometimes Laura Boon 66. Mm. Fantastic. So everyone can connect with you there. Well, congratulations on the book, Laura. It is fantastic. And as I said, even for someone who has been in the industry for quite some time, there were things in there that um, were great for me to read and to learn about and to have finally explanations of. So thank you for that. Thank you very much, Pam. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon, and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>